Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Learn the whole ropes after writing writing a good book and getting ready to market it on all of the production and publishing side to ensure that it is a quality product that's available in as many places as possible. The upshot is more control, faster payment terms if you self-publish than via a publisher, and I would say higher earning potential. Sometimes that's true. <laughs> Just depends on how you price your book and, and how you go to market as a self-published author. So that's the overview. And one path will appeal more to one author. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jesse Krieger. Jesse, thanks for doing this. Pleasure to be here. Excited for this conversation for sure. Well, founder and publisher of Lifestyle Entrepreneurs Press, you've got publishing deals on multiple contents yourself, help people get 100 books out there. I'm, I'm a total book nerd, so I'm really interested in your wisdom here today. How did you get into that industry? Sure. Well, you know, I've been an entrepreneur in some shape or form my whole life, starting in the music business, transitioned to consulting, investment banking, renewable energy, all while kind of traveling three to four months a year internationally throughout my 20s. And as I was getting towards age 29 or so, I just sold a promotional products business I had started. And it just seemed like the right time to answer the question a lot of people are asking, which is like, what is your approach to business and life? So I set about writing what became Lifestyle Entrepreneur, my book, which was originally published in Southeast Asia in 2012. I went and spoke at book fairs, toured around Malaysia, Singapore, that part of the world. I have a background in Chinese language as well, so that was helpful. Then landed a, a U.S. publisher as a result of that in 2014. The updated version of Lifestyle Entrepreneur came out, the version most people know today. And through that experience, going through it all twice as an author, that's what really you know gave me the idea and the intuition and the access and opportunity to essentially start a publishing company, which if you ask me that you know, many, many years ago, I wouldn't have necessarily imagined that this would be my career but it's such a perfect fit in in every way, which happy to share about here. Yeah, that's right. Where does your background in the Chinese language come from? 
Yeah, an invitation from a, an entrepreneur to visit China in 2008. He kind of showed me the ropes and it blew my mind what was going on, how much just business and activity was happening there. That was when I really tuned into it. Then I started to study. I ended up minoring in Chinese language at UC Berkeley, spent a summer in Beijing at Beijing Normal University, the next summer in Taiwan at National Taiwan University, and really took it to a degree where I didn't need to speak English. But to be totally honest, Jess, that is a few years in the rearview mirror and my Chinese skills aren't what they used to be. <laughs> Use it or lose it, huh? <laughs> it's kind of like that. But I hear it's like riding a bike, although I haven't gotten back on it yet. Well, you know, a hundred books here, a hundred plus books here. What are some of the lessons you've learned from not just your own books, but helping so many other folks with theirs? Yeah, there's a lot to mine there. I'll start with one that comes to my mind is this is really interesting. And hopefully this is fascinating for everybody listening or that's thought about writing a book. You almost, as you start writing a book and you plant your flag on the topic and the area of focus that you want to bring your work out on, it's almost as if you summon up the opposition or the antithesis of your thesis, as you could call it. And if you're prepared for that as an author, then, you know, I think that's the way to overcome being derailed, like many people are, who either start to write a book or experience what they may consider extreme opposition. And what I notice is, you know, if you work through that on the other side is when you actually get to harvest the the rewards of the book writing and publishing process. Those being people you've never met in places you've never been, finding your book, reading it, leaving a review or reaching out, telling you about the impact it's had on your life. We can't see that when we're writing and going through our process and there's nobody else really involved in it in that incubating stage. So I guess what I've learned is that although it's unique to each author, there's a commonality of working through the antithesis that allows what you really want to bring out to be in its full expressed form. Yeah. What are some examples of that? Sure. So we have a, a book here by the founder of College Magazine, Qualified, You Are More Impressive Than You Realize. And wouldn't you believe it, in the process of writing this book, she had many experiences of feeling unqualified, being told that she wasn't qualified, basically working through the very things that she's helping people work through within the book in her own life experience. Similarly, with people that write about how to make a lot of money in business, they could experience the potential to lose money before they finalize that book on how to really make money. Same with health and wellness. It's really kind of a phenomenon that I've observed. And maybe it's just specific to me, but I do believe that this is kind of a common experience across authors of all stripes, mostly in the nonfiction space. Although you run up against similar type of, you know, internal opposition in the fiction space as well. Are you familiar with Stephen Pressfield's book called The War of Art? Love it. One of my faves. I just, as you're speaking there, I just kept thinking about the resistance, <laughs> you know, like... If you want to, if you want to quit working for Mother Teresa's foundation and go become a telemarketer, there'll be no resistance. That'll that'll go smooth sailing. But if you want to do something that's going to make the world better, expect expect resistance. It's, I mean, and I imagine that I just see this as a facet of life through the publishing lens. But you perhaps had experience in deal making and in your business where you can kind of see that like that pivotal moment where it could either come apart or be seen through to completion. And for whatever reason, I find I really focus in on that since you asked like what's something, a, a common thread throughout the publishing experience of a hundred books or so. That is one thing I've learned for sure. Yeah. 
You know, one of the things that I think about a lot is there's many reasons to write a book, but for so many, for so many folks, they recognize how business gets easier if you become a higher profile expert in your space. And, you know, books get you speaking gigs, books get you invites to be on podcasts or TV shows or YouTube shows or you know, it can do a lot of work for you. And yet there can be a lot of almost like I'm too close to the problem to know it should go in my own book, you know? And so when you think about advice for people to, to think of like, what should I leave out? And like, what is, what is the book that will actually get my ideal client to call us? What, what kind of principles would you bring to that question? That is an excellent question. I think the best way to answer it is let's use... For a business book, as you mentioned, they're intended to bring you the kind of clients that you really want to work with and they'll be the right fit for your business. I recommend starting and thinking through the structure of the book in a similar way that you find close clients and fulfill on them in the course of business. And if you can do an overlay where you think about, okay, well, let's start with my ideal client. Like what's their demographic? Where are they in life? What are they looking for? What are their passions and so forth? What do they not know that's important for them to know to achieve success with what it is the book's about? And that becomes the beginning and kind of the setup to meet them where they're at, level set that, that you know, they're reading the right book and the results you're going to help them get if they identify with this starting point. And then just look at the discrete steps that you would take clients through or that your business helps um, clients achieve results with and chunk that down to the point where you've got a chapter outline. And, and essentially what I'm saying in so many words is if you think of your before state, and that's either you 10 years ago before you knew what you know now, or it's your ideal client that you're best capable of serving. And then where does that lead them to? What's that end state? Your book becomes the bridge and the chapters become the individual steps that they need to traverse where it is that you're promising this book will help lead them, the results it'll help get, the problem it'll help solve. And that's general, but you give me any business and we could take that through a similar talk, talking process that would result in at least a version 1.0 of an outline. I think that's a good place to start because then if somebody reads it, they now accept that you're an authority on this topic by virtue of having written a book. You've demonstrated results that you've gotten and results you've helped other people get. And you've laid out a process for them to achieve similar results or better. And, and that becomes the right sort of formula to say, okay, how do we take what we're doing in business and our story and all this experience and distill it into a book that's going to meet people where they are and help get them where they want to go? You know, it sounds so simple when you say it that way. And yet <laughs> we're all so terrible at being objective for ourselves. When you think about how a potential author, you know, let's say entrepreneur, investment company manager, that's, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are fund managers or, or run their own businesses or in, in the middle of a startup. If they want to become more objective and, and simplify to what you just said, and, and, you know, not put everything in the kitchen sink in the book, how, how, what advice would you have on how to do what you said simply without driving ourselves nuts going in circles? Sure. Well, I would say this, like this is a benefit of having a good editor or having a publishing partner is somebody that can give you perspective and hold the objectivity. And that's speaking as an author, as well as now a publisher, 
yes, it's it's way too easy to get lost in the weeds of, you know, the expertise, what you're passionate about, what you want to share, what you have knowledge on. But if you can always just filter it through, you know, either what does my ideal client need to know and in what order, or quite simply just identifying like each of the key ideas that comprise your process or the, the mechanism that you help get results with, and then say, what's the main idea for each of those steps? Now you've got your focal point for the chapter. And then just say, let's identify one story for each chapter that's going to set up the topic and set the stage for the actual topical point, the teaching point. So if you've got one story and one key idea for each chapter, that's the way to, to, to start top down, where then you say, okay, well, today I'm going to sit down and really write or create the story that sets up chapter two. You know, next next week I feel inspired. I'm going to really lay out the whole steps on like what chapter five is all about. So if you start with that approach, then you can just plug and play creating content that fits into the, the puzzle, which is a different approach than saying, you know, I'm so inspired. I want to write. Uh, let's start. And then you just keep spilling and writing and talking. And then you have a body of work, but it needs some adjustment it needs to to be reined in a little before it's really impactful but that itself is normal too so don't lose hope if that's the situation you're in <laughs> and and tell me more about your model are you more like a traditional publisher a hybrid publisher T tell me what what you guys kind of fit category wise as yeah, I, I think of us as a hybrid. We're an independent publisher. We have a partnership with Ingram and Ingram Publisher Services gives us the global reach of the equivalent of a traditional same distribution and sales partner as Harvard Business Review Press and other notable publishers outside of the traditional publishing ecosystem. So in that respect, we have a, a more boutique team. Our team works together with every author and on every book, as opposed to having multiple departments and imprints and client managers and stuff. We just partner with 45 to 50 entrepreneurial authors per year and take it through the whole process. So that's our model. I'm happy to share, you know, our commercial terms are 50% net royalties we pay out to our authors on a quarterly basis. That ends up being two to three times higher earning potential per book versus a traditional where you may get 10%, maybe up to 20% on book sales. And on the front end, we have two tiered model. We either can do no money down and we have a crowdfunding platform. We support authors in running a pre-launch crowdfunding campaign with the goal of bringing in at least $10,000, which then covers all of the publishing process. Or we have, you could skip the crowdfunding and we just have a fee-for-service model that starts at 15 k both of which are all-inclusive. And we could go into a little bit more detail, but I wanted to create an option for authors that are passionate, have an audience and could get a traditional publishing deal, but want a partner and don't want to necessarily pay or invest up front. So that's what we've been playing with over the last year. And on the topic of the show, I do think we're bringing some innovation into publishing with this crowdfunding model, as well as just fee-for-service model that plugs into our whole distribution network. Yeah. You know, you've had different folks with different aspects of crowdfunding on the show before and, you know, equity crowdfunding, traditional crowdfunding, marketing agencies who have had really successful campaigns, product companies who have had successful campaigns. But I'm interested from a book perspective, what do you feel like are some of the elements of a successful crowdfunding campaign for in books? Yeah, well, in, in this respect, it really does pair right with that author's business. Because what we want to do is look at 
how can we position the business offerings that already exist or that you want to roll out over the coming months in the next one to two years within this campaign? So if that's an online training course, then maybe it's either pre-order five books or pre-order 10 books or contribute $100 to $200 to this campaign. And now you'll get the book when it comes out, but you'll also get instant access to a training course. If that's a one-on-one consultation, you could offer those in the context of the campaign. All the way up to, we've had an author do a $10,000 like corporate um, engagement that's closed, close the business through the campaign because the book then becomes the, the hook. It's the magnet. It's what the campaign's all about. But then you say, in this book, we're teaching you X, Y, and Z for $10,000. Our team will do X, Y, and Z with you and for your team. So it's all on message, but we just look at what are the different spectrum of offerings that are relevant to the book and then find the right pricing that's designed to meet the market like with that author's clients, as well as to appeal to people that may just find out about it for the first time as we're rolling out the campaign. Yeah. That's so where we start. I guess there's obviously a little bit more there. <laughs> yeah. So I guess maybe I'll ask the reverse question. What are what are some of the rookie mistakes you see in, in book crowdfunding? Yeah, in, in crowdfunding, like if we're not involved and someone's doing a campaign, I think it's a mistake to just offer, you know, pre-order my book or hey, pre-order two copies and give one to a friend. And if those are the only offers and then all of the other energy is on connecting, communicating it out, you know, and all of that. then it's missing the opportunity for the percent of people that may want to invest 500, that may want to invest 1,000, 2,000, $10,000, but you're not giving them the option to, and they don't just want to order, you know, 100 books. And so that can be a a mistake by simply not offering a higher price um, option precludes you from getting the money that may already be there wanting to support you. I would say the other is not not having a realistic expectation of what it will take to get traction. So just thinking like, okay, we crafted this campaign and then you're going to do like one social post and one email and wait for everyone to just flood the flood the gates, right? When in fact, it takes a more strategic like ongoing communication campaign to really get the traction that most authors are looking for. So I would say one is not having um, a spectrum of options at higher prices. And the other is thinking that just because the field of dreams dilemma, just because you've created this campaign, all of a sudden people are going to flood you with interest and come waving their credit cards, right? So if I can help level set the expectation on both of those, then just those alone will help people have better campaigns. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So in your world, when you look at, I'd be interested in your thoughts of the advantages and disadvantages of big major publisher, HarperCollins, Wiley, something like that. Advantages, disadvantages of of more the hybrid and advantages, disadvantages on self-publishing. Excellent question. Let's start with the traditional. I mean, so you've got five, now maybe four major traditional publishers, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Hachette, so on and so forth. These are all subsidiaries of multinational media conglomerates. So that's one thing to be aware of that, you know, if you're pursuing a traditional deal, it needs to be aligned with the overall like focus of of that publisher. So that's one piece. I mean, advantage if you have a real national platform, like if you have your own cable news show, or if you are a regular fixture on nationally syndicated radio, or if you have a podcast with 
50,000 downloads per episode. That's Those are the kind of metrics that start to make sense for a traditional and for an author to pursue a traditional. And they're really, they're the the full like nationwide infrastructure, which needs to be met with full nationwide demand, which is the expectation that the author is bringing that to the table. And if the author is, the publisher can support it with their publicity and their other access and opportunities. So that model you get a literary agent, you pitch publishers, you try to get an advance, and then the book comes out. Hopefully you sell enough books to earn out of your advance. And that's the business relationship on traditional. With independent, with hybrid like us, they can offer more royalties with similar distribution. That's the case with us. The downside is you know, it's unlikely to get an advance from a hybrid or an independent publisher. Instead, you could either have a no money down option, which is one of the ways we offer, or they'll have a service fee to do production services and to provide support leading up to the publishing of the book. So it's more of a partnership. It could be more of an investment to look at hybrid independent. Although the upshot is you likely will have more personal attention and, you know, a team that's that actively knows who you are and cares about your success. I'm not here to take a, you know, rain on the parade for any traditional publishers, but something I hear from a lot of authors is they feel just kind of passed around and, you know, one day this is their contact and then the next day it's someone else and nobody's really invested in the success of their book and the continuity of the project. So I think that's an upside with hybrid and smaller boutique publishers. And then with self-publishing, you have to figure that this is like starting a second business. If you're not already familiar with the space, then you need to either learn or hire or coordinate editing, design, layout, formatting, learn the self-publishing platforms, um, which aren't terribly difficult, but then to give a presentation that's on par with what independent publishers and traditional publishers are publishing every day, that's the major drawback to self-publishing, that most people are coming into this process for the first time and competing against season's vets. And that's a real disadvantage because it is hard to learn the whole ropes after reading, writing a good book and getting ready to market it on all of the production and publishing side to ensure that it is a quality product that's available in as many places as possible. The upshot is more control, faster payment terms if you self-publish than via a publisher. And I would say higher earning potential. Sometimes that's true. <laughs> Just depends on how you price your book and, and how you go to market as a self-published author. So that's the overview. And one path will appeal more to one author versus the other. It's not my job to say you should do it this way or that way, but I can go deeper into any one of those if you're curious. Well, one thing I'm curious about is like there are things that are that interest me about hybrid publishers, but I do I do look at the business generation opportunity with the ability to give away a book if you're in services or depending what you're selling, right? And, you know, I, I used to work at a management consulting firm called the Arbinger Institute, and they've got a book called Leadership and Self-Deception that sold like 2 million copies, right? And it was great. Like we landed major accounts by sending out free books because the book was so good. People were like, wow, I haven't heard this before. What is this stuff, you know? And, but, you know, working with a more traditional publisher, you have to go buy copies of your own books to give away, right? Exactly. And so if you're not trying to make money from book sales, it's really your lost leader. There's some, there's some attraction for me, at least, to look at self-publishing and have the ability to reduce my costs on giving away, you know, seeding the market with a huge number of books, right? But then well, there's all the annoyance of having to learn a new business, right? And so 
I'm interested in how that gets navigated sometimes in the independent in the independent publisher world or hybrid world. Yeah, in many cases, we'll print dozens, if not a hundred or more, promo copies with for the specific purpose of the author giving them to media, giving them to potential reviewers, to influencers, what have you. So in in that sense, like relative to how traditional may do it, I'm on board with let's get the book into the right hands because that's going to help the overall story. And accordingly, we also have a preferential price for our authors to buy books if they want to sell them themselves or distribute them like directly, because I think that's important too. I stopped short of endorsing the free plus shipping model just because okay. I think that that is the true loss leader. And I think it devalues the book. It's just getting people into the higher price offer, but it's worked for some people. So, you know, if yeah. it works, it works. <laughs> and I'm probably thinking, because I mean, even if you self-publish, you still have to pay to print the thing, right? I guess what I'm thinking about is more so the ebook or the audiobook, where this is potentially just a digital transmission. What are what are kind of the different policies in the in the independent world? What do you see out there? I think it's a good practice to launch the book and drive sales. But once the book's out, I'm an advocate for if you include it in a giveaway or if you have something where, you know, you're giving the book away free digitally as part of a larger campaign, that can be very effective. The giveaways especially, I mean, I've included my book in giveaways once or twice a year. And we'll get 1,000 to 2,000 email subscribers by giving my book away for free. But I only do it for like one day. So it's part of an event as opposed to like go to mm. my homepage and, hey, get my book for free. Yeah. So I, I think there's a balance because if it's always free or if people know it's free as part of a simple funnel, then it, it does devalue the book. On the other hand, getting a lot of exposure like Russell Brunson did with uh, Traffic Secrets and Expert Secrets, he did free plus shipping, gave away tens of thousands of books, but also sold tens of thousands of books through retail just because the amplitude of the marketing was so loud that people just bought it anyways. So if you do a big enough campaign, then any publicity is good publicity. My personal preference, though, is give away part of the book instead of here, have my book for free. Mm. Give people the first three chapters and then drip out an email campaign that unpacks the value, offers them the book and schedules a call you know, with your sales team. I think that's the way that we play it so that we're still driving the book sale, which does have positive impact to get more retailers on board, more media, bigger book scan numbers. So if we can build in a way that the book is selling and it's a business development tool, I think that's the best of all worlds. But look, obviously people have had success and continue to have success giving away their book or just using it as a client acquisition tool without wanting to drive bestseller level numbers through retail, which is just a different approach. Yeah. You know, something that you brought up earlier, maybe shifting gears just slightly, you talked about the hook to bring people in. Do you know this Brandon Kane book that came out last year, Hook Point? Are you familiar with this one? Yeah. I Yes, but I haven't read that one. Oh, it's so good. You got to get a copy. So, but he, you know, this concept of like, we live in the information overload age. So, you know, if you follow top YouTubers, like a, a Mr. Beast, right? We had one of his strategists, Daryl Eves, on the show recently. And, you know, guy's got, you know, number one YouTuber in the world, whatever, right? And they'll spend so much time on their headline and, and thumbnail because click-through rate is what gets an algorithm to promote it to the next guy, right? It's like yes. click, click-through rate and watch time. Like, can you get people to click it? And will they stay on it after they clicked it, right? 
And I keep thinking about, again, because I'm a book nerd, I literally go to Barnes & Noble and walk around and take pictures of book covers. Okay. I've got like done this for years. I've got like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of book covers, my Google images. Okay. But to me, I think about it like the YouTube thumbnail. Like what is the headline and thumbnail? What's the name of this book? And what is like, does this cover communicate? You're the book for me. And, and does the book cover just blend in with the other, however many thousand books in this bookstore right now? I give, this might be helpful, like as an illustrative example, but here's a book we published, start from zero. And let's break down what's on this. So start from zero, obviously the main title. Subtitle, build your own business, experience true freedom. Zero ideas, zero cash, zero experience, zero confidence, including 15 real world examples. And then of course the author name. And I'm just covering up this as an advanced reader copy. But if you look at the real estate here, right, you've got your headline, subheadline, call to action and authority establishment, right? So it, yes, yes, a well-designed book cover, including the title, subtitle, uh, if there's a quote from a notable person or if the author has special attribution, that's your chance to, sometimes your only chance, to convey the value of your book. So that's very important. And and I can relate to copywriters and, you know, headline and online marketers in that respect. You know, it's like, I think... Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I no, say, no, when you get it right... You could literally just say the book name or show someone the book and like, I need that book. That's the upshot of when you get it right. Instant recognition that that's for me. Yeah, makes so much sense. I, I, well, let's talk about this. When you think about principles for naming a book, what, what are some of the ideas that come to mind for you? For Let's talk nonfiction business book that's supposed to attract clients to call you. What are, yeah. How do you help authors think that process through? I would say that for the main title, it's okay to be a little abstract, but it's great to plant the flag with something that really encapsulates what you do. So if you want to be known for a method, then call it like the real estate investment method. And then it becomes a definitive statement on your area of expertise. The subtitle I think of it, that's describing to the reader what they're actually going to learn. So if the main title is a little abstract or just a declarative statement, the subtitle fills in the blank and paints the full picture. So like start from zero. Okay, that could be how do I find love after a divorce? How do I get back on my feet after a bankruptcy? But then the the subtitle, start, build your own business, experience true freedom, that tells you, oh, this is a book that's going to tell me how to build my own business so I can experience true freedom. And so the combination is what is really important, more than just the title on its own, although the best books, the title on its own can carry it too. And then in terms of the other real estate, quote from a notable person or somebody that has recognizable stature in the field, huge plus to get. And, uh, and then the attribution for the author, if there's, you know, something really unique, then that's a good place to, to spice it up too. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think, so, you know, I didn't take the typical route to investment banking. I'm an arts, I'm an art school dropout. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, yeah. I was an illustration major. I, I was, at first I was going to go do an MFA at Art Institute in Chicago. And then this guy I met in Southern California was saying like, that's a terrible idea. You're never going to be able to feed your family. Go do commercial art. Go to like the Harvard of commercial art. Go to Art Center in Pasadena. Get a job in the entertainment industry like I did, you know, drawing for the movies and make a hundred grand a year while you paint for 30 years until people know your name and <laughs> sell your paintings for a hundred thousand, right? So I, I got too impatient and dropped out and became an entrepreneur and then got 
headhunted to Citigroup. Okay. But um, my point is this. I don't know if it's just because I'm such a book nerd or I have all these New York Times bestselling authors on the show or just because I have a lot of opinions. But I do get a lot of folks coming to me asking questions about ideas for book covers and when they're at that stage. And I, I help a guy teach a class on this. And for me, something that gets really underestimated is what does this look like when somebody's scrolling on audible.com on their phone? Like, yes, this is what the book cover looks like in person. But what percentage of time are they going to be scrolling through Amazon versus seeing it in person? You know, what does yeah. it look like as a one inch by one inch? You know? Well, that goes back to, you know, it- like, what else do you notice on this cover? The title is like 70% of the cover, which means from, you know, far away on a shelf or a tiny dot on a screen, you can still read it, make it out. And that should be true with all of them, right? It should be high contrast. It should pop. you got to be able to see it when it's scaled down or if it's 15, 20 feet away on a shelf, which reveals one of the other mistakes that self-publishers make is the title is way too small, almost across the board, you know? So be big, bold. It should be attention grabbing. It should feel almost bigger than natural when you're holding it right in front of your face, looking at it. Yeah, I love it. You know, again, just because books have changed me so much and I love books so much, I I do have a lot of authors on. This morning I had uh, Jim Hunter on. He wrote a book called The Servant. And it's interesting, you know, he's done zero other marketing besides he wrote three books, right? He's done zero other marketing in 35 years and has had a very substantial leadership training business. And it's because those books have sold five and a half million copies, right? That's that's incredible. (laughs) It's absurd, right? You know, you don't, you don't have to do a lot else, right? If you can do a book, if you can have a book that, that does some obscene numbers, right? And it's funny how like, oftentimes I feel like a YouTube video or a documentary would actually be more helpful to people. But books just have a different respect. Books, they hold a different part of the customer mind. And that's just any book. I mean, a good book is awesome compared to even any book. But any book, you can put so much time into like spending all sorts of money and time making a great YouTube video that gets all these views. And it is not is not in the category of, and they wrote a book. What I, w- what I would say is if somebody has a good YouTube audience, it's a great, great thing to do a book because you've got oh, long yeah. form content and similar with podcast hosts. And the reason I think that both podcast hosts and YouTubers have outsized success potential with their book is because they're creating long form content already. And they have an audience of people that wants more than the 30 second reel or the like, you know, 60 second motivational burst. It's delivering the full goods. But I would agree, you know, I do agree that like an hour YouTube video, it's in a different category than a book, even if it has a million or millions of views. It could be very impactful, but it doesn't give the same positioning as if you're the best-selling author of the book with the same title as that video, let's say. What I have found and we have had success with is, you know, for YouTubers, we'll create a pre-launch campaign and then just update their most popular videos First line in the description is pre-order my book here and get some special bonuses. And now all those views translate into book sales and that can work like a treat. And and the other thing I'd say is, you know, from my view, the root word of authority is author. And I think there's a connection, even if it's subconscious, that when somebody's authored a book, they are the authority on that subject, which is different than like a YouTube, you know, my eight-year-old nephew could create a YouTube channel. It doesn't mean he's the authority. Maybe he is, but 
it's it's a different positioning when you're a, an author, a published author versus even a influential uh, person with an online platform. So I would I would agree with that statement. And beyond that, I have my theories, but it just is in a different category when you publish a book on on a topic versus creating a, a podcast episode or a long form video. Yeah. You know, I can talk about books for hours. I want to take it. I want to take a tangent, go a different direction for a minute. One of my favorite. I'm going to ask you a couple of my favorite questions. One of them is, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And how has that been an advantage for your for your career and your business? That is a fascinating question. I was born in San Francisco, California, two blocks from Haight Ashbury. Grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Went to California public schools my entire education and then have lived in Europe. I've lived in Asia. I've lived in the South. Now I live in Las Vegas. So I would say, you know, that upbringing was very supportive and like tolerant. And I've carried that forward to just being able to connect with and partner with people from diverse walks of life. So I would say, I think there's a benefit to the more like open-minded or liberal or tolerant, however you want to say it, out in Bay Area and Silicon Valley has translated well for me being able to connect with people that have vastly different backgrounds, life experiences, business experiences. So I, I credit that and credit my parents too for putting up with me. <laughs> <laughs> were you like, were you kind of a born entrepreneur? Were you always doing stuff? What, what were you like? In, from age 13 to 23, I was all music, electric guitar, I was in rock bands. My first business was a record label because I didn't want to sign a deal with someone else because it seemed like getting a job. So I was like, hey, we'll just create a record label to have our band career. And that was my entree to entrepreneurship, as it were, at age 21. The easy business of music. (laughs) There are some interesting parallels between music and books, which is part of content generally. I do appreciate those connections that I can identify. And working with people in the music industry just further reinforced that I feel like I can honestly work with almost anybody. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. One of my next favorite questions has been, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? It was to go through this exercise of setting my watch forward by a year and describing in past tense language what's happened over the last year as if it's already happened. And to do that as a, a visioning or planning exercise to just get into the mental space and look backwards and see what did I just do that accomplished this result? And then come back to present time and start doing those exact steps. That's proved very helpful for me throughout my life. Yeah, it's an intriguing exercise. But it puts you in a different mental state than just goal setting, right? Yeah, just embodying the completion and then looking back to say, well, how did I do it? Tracing back to the present time, that becomes the pathway to pursue or at least to start down. Yeah. Back to back to my love, back to books. When you think about how many folks have something to say that aren't a professional writer, what kind of advice do you have for, you know, getting that getting that first draft done, getting, you know, getting at least something on paper so you can work with editors or, you know, dictating out to somebody else or like what what kind of ideas do you have for people who don't consider themselves a great writer but think they've got a book in them? First, I would say some of the best writers in the world didn't think of themselves as good writers, but they wrote and now they're considered some of the best writers that were ever born. So where you are now isn't where you're going to be. But if you don't like the act of writing itself, there's a number of ways to create great content. One of them can be like, I call it a softball interview. 
But if we got onto a call and if I was helping you create a book, then I'd have one or two softball questions just to get you talking on topic. We'd be recording it after that transcribed, edited, and worked into a, a manuscript. So that's a way to bridge like somebody just speaking and expounding on their area of expertise and then working it into you know text content. It doesn't have to mean that you've typed every word to write a book. Far from it. Yeah, that's great. Well, what's, you know, what's, what's another thing that, you know, after, again, not just doing your own, but helping people with a hundred other books that, that you've discovered that maybe you didn't expect? I guess how rewarding and fulfilling it is to help people midwife their, their dream into creation. You know, it can be a rocky road. As we talked about in the beginning, committing to publishing can bring up a lot of stuff. But on the other side of that, it's also incredibly fulfilling. It's a big milestone in life to publish a book. And it's, uh, it's just fun to be a part of that process within the context of all the books we publish are designed to empower people, expand their perspective, give them real solutions to real world problems. And so I equate directly the next book we sell with the next person that we're able to help. And that's a pretty powerful alignment to go into scaling a business and, you know, recommitting to if whenever something comes up. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, just for myself, I keep, you know, I've got a couple different book titles going right now, uh, some different books I've outlined. And specifically, you know, I'm looking to write the kind of books that have people say, you know, I like the way his brain thinks I would consider buying, you know, real, you know, quarterly real estate income from Jess, right? From Greystoke. Knowing that I want to write a book about that kind of promoting Warren Buffett's principles, but, but maybe trying to make them even less intimidating or or more easily built into habits for everyday people. What kind of advice would you have for me as I'm on that journey? That's a, gr- a great question. You've got plenty of great questions, which I will readily credit you for here. What I would say is if somebody's already thinking about generating income from real estate, then that's one approach. But if you're painting the picture of a way that's possible to make passive income, then you might be well served to paint the picture of like, how does real estate investing stack up relative to your other options? Because this is just my intuition hearing the question, but that unless somebody's specifically looking for information on real estate investing or passive income generation, you might be able to build the deeper relationship by helping them either set up for retirement or generating X amount in passive income in a certain amount of time and framing it a little bit broader than just real estate investing. Now, in the course of that, you're educating them, you're allowing them to come to the conclusion that, you know what, real estate investing and specifically with Jess seems like the best avenue for me to pursue. So however that's delivered, if that's what the book helps accomplish of like comfortable that this is a a great way to pursue investing, understand how it's better and different than the other options available, and that there's a personal connection, then that's kind of the trifecta that lets people take the next step and feel excited about it. And the, the corresponding effect is there's less selling. Like somebody reads your book and contacts you, you don't have to go into like a whole pitch. They just read essentially the pitch and came to their decision. Then you can just answer any questions and get started. So, you know, that's how I would start to look at it. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I've been talking to other people with experience in publishing and, and other authors about it. And one of the pieces of advice I got is that like, I'm trying to stuff too much stuff into a bag that it doesn't fit. And that I need to like, 
break it up into a series and and maybe write you know shorter, more accessible books as as a series. And so I'm kind of leaning towards the like, just do the first book, making the Warren Buffett principles more accessible and kind of getting the buy-in there. And then down the road, you know, adding in the real estate parts and then adding in the specific subsectors of real estate and like maybe stair-stepping them instead of one big thick book, maybe maybe well, a series a of smaller that, ones. Um, that came out, you may have heard of it, the Bezos letters. Somebody combed through all of Jeff Bezos's quarterly reports and synthesized his philosophy and then presented it. You could have an opportunity like that if you're presenting Warren Buffett's philosophy, then why not ride on, you know, that name recognition and in the process people get to learn, oh, Jess invests Jess invests similarly to Warren Buffett's principles which he's kindly shared in this book. Not going to invest with Berkshire Hathaway, I'll invest with Jess. That could be the net effect, even if the book itself is about like mastering Warren Buffett's investing principles. That's one option if you want to specifically draw from Warren Buffett, which wouldn't be a bad idea, but it's a decision versus, you know, taking another tact and and drawing from Buffett's wisdom within the book, but not making it the namesake. No, I think I'm going to go the namesake. I, I'm pretty obsessed. And th- there's a lot of great stuff that has been written already. And so my thought is to maybe take a little, take an angle on it that makes it even more accessible to somebody who, you know, they became wealthy building a business, not by being an investor. And, you know, sometimes, you know, all the like drowning in options and, you know, all the acronyms and stuff can feel intimidating for people who haven't spent a career doing that. And how can I like Warren Buffett claims his his approach is simple. How can I make people actually feel that, you know, so I think there's definitely something there. Yeah, it's just I always start thinking a few steps ahead. But you know, then within the book, you'd say, I built my investment business based on these principles that I'm sharing within the book. So then right away, you're you're positioning yourself and your investment firm as elaborating the principles that you've distilled from Buffett and from other successful investors. So, and I also like what you yeah, said, is- you know, what the, there's making money, there's keeping it, and then there's growing it. So if people are good at making money, it doesn't mean they're good at saving or investing or investing wisely and doing, you know, the whole compound approach. So you could you could tease that out for people that have made money in business to have an easy understanding of how to m- keep and grow more of it. Something like that could be really impactful. Very cool. Well, listen, if people want to find out more about you and the business and your options, where are the best places online? Sure. LifestyleEntrepreneursPress.com. Hopefully we can link it up under here. And I'm pretty easy to find. Jesse Krieger just do a search if you want to hear more from me. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it.